0: You know when a kid, like if you've got kids, you know, or you remember this from when you were a kid, uh, when a kid goes, you're not the boss of me. You know that, right? You hear kids say that. Um, What's at the heart of that? Why, Why do kids say that, right? Because they don't want anybody to tell them what to do. It's not really that different with adults, right? We don't love the idea of authority in our lives know, um, the idea of authority, right, rubs us the wrong way. It's not great having somebody tell you what to do. And that's why you hear in our culture, people will say things like, well, you know, my um, job, it doesn't pay a lot, but I'm my, I, at least I get to be my own boss. Have you ever heard somebody say that? What are they saying? I would rather be broke than have somebody tell me what to do. You know, I mean, that's kind of... I, we really don't like the idea of authority, but truthfully, not all authority is bad, right? The idea of authority is not inherently bad. Have you ever had a good boss? It's, good, it's good, right? When you have a great boss who, like, um, wait, aren't you the boss? Are you a good boss? Hopefully. So I'm going to call your team. Have you ever had a good boss, John's team, right? Um no, I mean it's great when you have a boss who gives you structure, lets you know what to do, helps you do it, empowers you. It's it's a good thing. Or when you were younger, you know, you were in school. Did you ever have a great teacher who helped you actually learn something? I had this one teacher. Her name was Don Mulliken. Her husband's name was Don, also Mulliken. Don and Don Mulliken. Anyway, I think that's hilarious. Um, I had her freshman year. And I hated her guts, and she was terrible. And she always tried to tell me what to do. And she was super mean, and she was a butthead. And then I had her again senior year. And I went, oh, she's brilliant, and she's a great teacher. And I learned a ton from her. And it was just, I was the butthead, right? You know, and, but what she did was, she um, actually cared about teaching. You know what I mean? And so she, when she exercised authority, the idea wasn't, uh, I'm trying to be mean. It's, I'm trying to help you learn. And so the class I took with her senior year, I still remember it, that stuff, right? Like, it was, she was a great teacher. Or, I mean, there's other examples, right? Did, if you ever played sports, did you ever have a great coach who helped you actually learn how to tuck your elbow when you're shooting your fritos? Right? Uh, I did. And uh, every time I didn't tuck my elbow, he would yell at me. And you might think, hey, he's yelling at you. But what he wants is for the best. You know, he wants the best for me. Or maybe some of you even had awesome parents who exercised authority in ways that really helped you as you were growing up becoming godly people. Um, today we're going to talk about authority, and spoilers for the end of the sermon, we're going to talk about how Jesus is the perfect authority in our lives, right? Um, he's the perfect teacher, parent, coach, you know, mentor, boss, right? So let's take a look at this text, um, in talking about the authority of Jesus and where that comes from. So one day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, okay, so that, that sort of sets the stage. Luke says, one day. Now, with the day we're on here, if you remember, we're in the section of Luke, if you missed those ones, we're in the section of Luke where we're in Holy Week. So a bunch of weeks ago, we read Jesus and the um, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. He comes into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, and uh, he first he goes into the temple, takes a look around. Then he goes home and goes to sleep. Monday he comes back, and this I, was this what we read last time. I think was the flipping of the tables. Right, he comes in and they're they're abusing the place where the Gentiles were supposed to come and worship, and Jesus goes. Uh, absolutely ballistic. He's flipping tables. He's hitting people with the whip, right? He's going nuts. He's very upset about this. Then he goes home. He, okay, so now one day is what Luke really means here. This is Tuesday, uh, as we kind of, we can piece together what the different days are in, the, the whole, in Holy Week. Okay, so Tuesday now, what is Jesus doing? He's in the temple, and he's, he's, he's teaching, and he's preaching the gospel. So I'm going to take a quick little sidebar here and explain the difference. Have you ever thought about this? I kind of use these words interchangeably when I'm talking about Sunday morning. I got to get up and teach this week, or I got to get up and preach this week. But actually, these words kind of have two different meanings. Okay, so teaching is sort of the bringing the facts, explaining the text, talking about the Greek words, you know, whatever, just kind of passing information. Uh, preaching then is the part where we're hammering the facts home. This is why you should care about this stuff. Um, on Sundays, what we want with church, so this is a real side note here, but on Sundays, what we want with church is, and what I'm trying to do here in these 45 minutes where we talk about the Bible, is we want to do both of those things. Right? We, want to, we want to learn the text and take in what's really going on. But at the same time, we're not just a bunch of nerds who are trying to get smarter than everybody else. We're trying to take this stuff and press it into our hearts. I always use that phrase, press it into our hearts, press it into our lives. Let the gospel change who we are when we walk out of this building. And so uh, sermons, there's a lot of sermons um, that, you know, I'm a sermon junkie. I listen to a lot of sermons. Some guys are very preachy where they don't talk about the text at all and they get up and they yell at you about what it's about. And that's not really that helpful because you're not getting scripture But then the other guys will tend to just teach the text, and it's very interesting. And, oh, I learned something about the way Roman centurions lived back in the day. And then you go home, and who cares, right? So anyway, Jesus here, I like that Luke puts this specifically. Jesus is doing both of these things, right? He's teaching, and he's that phrase, preaching the gospel, is one word in Greek. He's preaching the gospel. He's sharing the good news. Now, where is Jesus doing this? In the temple. Now, the idea of teaching in the temple just seems not, I don't know, it doesn't seem that impressive to us. But to ancient Jewish folks, this was kind of a big deal, right? Imagine a group of lawyers and one of the lawyers said, oh yeah, the other day I was arguing a case before the Supreme Court. All the other lawyers would go, whoa, right? I think, I don't know, I'm not a lawyer. I have a soul. No, I'm just kidding if anybody's a lawyer. <laughs> lawyer jokes are too low-hanging fruit, right? Uh, At my old church, we had a couple lawyers at the church, you know, and I made fun of them in sermons constantly. And then uh, the church would get sued or something, and we'd be like, Lawyers, help us, you know. (laughs) And they were always super great. Um, Anyway, that has nothing to do with it. I'm completely off track here. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So teaching in the temple doesn't seem that big of a deal to us, but to these folks, it was, right? Um, Think about where Jesus has come from. Now, remember, the city of Nazareth. Was this backwater little town that nobody important ever lived? So that to the point where one time one of the disciples says to um, I forget who it was said to Nathaniel in the book of John, "Oh, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth." And he's like, Pfft, "Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth?" Right? You remember that part? That's what he says. That's what everybody thought of this little town, right? And so the idea that a great teacher or prophet could come from there is pretty much unthinkable to these people. Um, to people in this day, and so, uh, do you remember though? Also, way back in Luke, we read this in Luke chapter four. Jesus actually goes home to Nazareth. So this is where he sort of starts teaching. So he he baptized by John. He has the temptation in the wilderness. The very next part is he goes home and he goes to the hometown synagogue in his small little town, and he opens up the scroll uh, from the book of Isaiah. And he, he does the scripture reading and then he explains the scripture, right? So this is the, the verse. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. So he does the scripture reading. Then he gives his sermon. It's a lot shorter than my sermon. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he reads this part about Isaiah that everybody knew was this messianic prophecy. He reads the text and he sits down and he basically says to his hometown, I'm the Messiah. That's his sermon. Now, what do the people, do you remember this? What did the people do when he said that? The very first thing they go, isn't that Joseph's kid? (laughs) Messiah, get out of here, right? Get out of here with this. But they're still curious because they've heard he's done all these miracles. So then they say to him, all right, if you're the Messiah or whatever, do miracles in church right now. Uh, Heal that guy or something, you know. And Jesus does the whole thing about, you know, a prophet in his own hometown. And so what they do is they try to kill him, and he escapes from the crowd, and he takes off. So think about what's really going on here. Jesus wasn't even accepted as a teacher in his own hometown synagogue, right? His hometown church was like, this guy sucks and we don't want him teaching here. And then, uh, you know, they're asking, right, what schooling does he have? What are his credentials? This is Joseph and Mary's kid, right? Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And so in our text in Luke, there's two things going on here uh, with the sort of honor and shame culture. The first thing is people didn't think Jesus came from the right stock, right? He didn't have the, the lineage that you would expect somebody that teaching in the temple. Group honor was a very important thing in the first century, and he didn't come from a group or a family clan that had enough honor for him to be teaching in the temple. The second thing is there's this idea in honor-shame cultures in the first century where what you could do is you could sort of claim more honor. You could reach out and say, I deserve more honor than the family or clan that I'm coming from. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Um, But then what you had to do is you had to prove it. You had to say there were different ways to say, this is why this honor is due to me. And so what's going to happen is Jesus is doing this. He doesn't come from the right stock. He shouldn't be allowed to teach in the temple, but here he is teaching in the temple. And so the leaders of the, the of Judaism, this religion at this time, are going to call him out about it. And so what we're going to read, that's what we're going to read this week, is they call him out and say, basically, you're not worthy to be teaching here. And then next week, what we're going to read is, its uh, or not next week, because we're not meeting, two weeks, we're going to read, um, uh, it's called an honor contest. I just learned about this while I was, it's really interesting. So we're going to read the next section is Jesus challenges them and then goes into this honor contest. So, which is like an ancient version of a theological rap battle, right? Like these guys are going to go at it. Okay, so first though, today what we're going to read is the confrontation. So let's keep going uh, here. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? So the chief priests and the scribes This was uh, like a shorthand, even though it's longer, I don't know why, but this was one way that in the ancient world they referred to this group called the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin. This was, I'm going to tell you about these guys for a minute because they're going to be very important in the next whole section of Luke. So they were the highest ruling authority in the nation of Israel, and this group was set up during the intertestamental period. So after the Old Testament ended and before Jesus was born and the New Testament started, it was like a 400 and something year gap during that time period, was when this Sanhedrin was put together. And they modeled this this leadership council after the council of elders that uh, that Moses put together in the book of Numbers. So if you remember way back in Numbers, Caleb's favorite book of the Bible, uh, in Numbers chapter 11, uh, there's a story. I'll read this to you. Then uh, the Lord said to Moses, "'Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel,' whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. So God tells Moses, go get 70 guys to help you run the country, right? To help you run this, rule these people. And so the Sanhedrin was just like this. It was 70 plus, the original council was 70 plus Moses. So what they did was they had 70 elders or people in the Sanhedrin plus the high priest, um, 24 of the people on this council were made up of, like, uh, uh, the chief priests, meaning they were from the tribe of Levi, and they were in charge of running the actual, like, temple structure. So these were, like, the normal priests who did the sacrifice and everything. This is, like, their boss's bosses, boss's bosses, boss, you know? 24 of these guys. Uh, what's the rest of that? 46? Is that right? Does that make 70? Yeah, okay. So 46 other guys— We're made up of just scribes, which were like theological lawyers, Pharisees, but mostly made up of a group that we're going to talk about a bunch in two weeks called the Sadducees. Now, by the time of Jesus, this group, the Sanhedrin, was notoriously corrupt, and they were puppets of the Romans uh, who actually got to appoint the high priest. So the Roman government got to appoint who gets to be the high priest, and he basically ran this council. And so this was a very political group, even though it was supposed to be sort of a spiritual group. The New Testament pictures these guys constantly clashing with the people of God, right? In a couple of weeks, we're going to read about this is the group that has the sham trial that condemns Jesus and takes him over uh, to Pontius Pilate to be executed. And then a couple of weeks after, you know, a couple of months after, we read about the Sanhedrin um, clashing with the disciples in the early parts of the book of Acts, including they actually stone and execute a guy named Stephen, right? So they get so mad at this guy, Stephen, they don't even follow the law, which they weren't allowed to execute people. They drag him outside and they stone him. Um, Paul has a confrontation with them in Acts 23 at the, towards the end of the book of Acts when he's in Jerusalem. So these guys are never in scripture really pictured in a good light. Now, so they come up to Jesus, <coughs> members of this Sanhedrin, the ruling council, they come up to Jesus and they say, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. So what are these things that Jesus is doing that he needs authority to do? two things. First, they're pretty mad because he just went in and flipped all the tables, right? This was their money-making venture, and Jesus was not having it. So that's the first thing. You got to have some authority to walk into a church and be like, you're doing communion wrong, and flip the table. You know what I mean? I'd be like, "Uh, who are you, you know, if somebody did that. The second thing is, he's teaching and he's preaching the gospel. And so they don't, you know, you have to have authority to do that. And so by asking him, By what authority are you doing these things? They're sort of insinuating you are stepping out of your place in our honor, shame culture. You have moved to somewhere you're not supposed to be. The question itself is phrased, it's insulting. It's implied, you don't have the authority to do this. They're basically saying it's one thing for you, Jesus, to be out there in the Sermon on the Mount, teaching in the grass with all these country bumpkins that nobody likes. But you're not out there anymore. This is the temple. You have gone too far, and so it's another slap in the face for the honor of Jesus to do this in public, right? They didn't pull him aside. Hey, Jesus, can we talk to you for a minute? By what authority are you doing these things? This was meant to shame him. Now, imagine a crime scene. Uh, you know, you guys watch the first forty-eight. I told you I watch that show all the time, right? Like the real homicide detectives, right? So imagine a crime scene, and it's all taped off and everything. You know, they've got the chalk outlines and they got those little yellow cards where all the casings for the bullets are and everything. And this guy walks in, pulls the rope down, and starts walking through, taking notes, moving stuff around, telling the cops, you need to go over there, you need to go over there. Now, at some point, one of the police on scene, one of the cops would say, "Uh, who are you? To this random guy that just walked in. Now, there's basically two ways that that could go. First, he could say something like, well, I'm a reporter or, you know, like somebody that's not a cop, and they would go, oh, get out of here. You're not supposed to be here. You don't have the authority to be here. The second thing that could happen is he could go, I'm with the FBI, and then all of a sudden all the cops go, oh, okay, he's in charge, (laughs) right? The FBI outranks us. Um, That's kind of what the reader expects to happen here. What's Jesus going to say? I have the authority to preach. I'm the FBI. We just read about all of Jesus's, you know, credentials for all the book of Luke, Or maybe he's going to say, you're right, sorry, guys, I shouldn't be here. No, that's not what Jesus does. He always picks the third option. He goes, let me see your badge. That's what he does. Watch this, verse 3. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now remember, Jesus never really answers people's questions. He always answers the question underneath the question, right? Um, If you remember, I used this illustration a few months ago, but I'll say it again. Um, it's like when I asked Melissa, how long do cats live? And she goes, Spot, that's our cat, her cat. You know, I forget what she said, but she was like, you, you have to put up with her. That's what she said, you know, something like that. Because she knew I wasn't asking, in general, how long do cats live? I was asking, how long do I have to put up with this stupid cat, right? And so <laughs> that's what Jesus does. He always answers the question underneath the question. And uh, his His question that he asks them though, so he turns it on them and he goes, do you remember, you guys remember John the Baptist from early in the book of Luke, right? The forerunner to the king, he had this massive ministry and uh, using sort of um, uh, exaggerated language, the gospels say, everybody in Jerusalem and Judea went out to go see John the Baptist, right? That's like saying, you know, everybody went to go see Hamilton. Well, not everybody, but almost everybody, you know, it's kind of like that. This guy was massively popular. And so Jesus asks them, okay, if you guys are so good at judging who has the authority to do stuff, what would you think about John? Was he a prophet of God or not? So look what they do. They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he's going to say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, they didn't know where it came from, right? I want to read to you from Matthew. This is the Pharisees, the, the leaders of this council. They did the same thing to John. They did an honor check. They went out the authority check. They went out, who are you? But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right, these are guys from the Sanhedrin, coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and don't presume to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, that's what, that's John, and another party calls him a brood of vipers, right? John and the Sanhedrin did not get along. They did not like him. So they did the same honor check, And that was his response. Here's the problem for them, though. Now they're doing this authority, honor, check with Jesus. Everybody knew they didn't like John the Baptist, the leaders. Uh, And eventually, even uh, Herod, who was kind of in with the Sanhedrin, arrested and executed John the Baptist. Everybody knew about this. But all the people loved him. He was wildly popular. So this is a no-win situation for them. The first option, option A, if they admit that John's ministry from God was from God, what they're admitting is that they were wrong about him. So then why should anybody trust what they think about Jesus? They were wrong about John. Who cares what they think about Jesus? The second option is they say, well, it's not from his baptism, his ministry was not from God. If they answer that, again, why trust them? Because everybody knows that it was and that they were obviously wrong. Jesus is a genius. He asks them this question where there's absolutely no way out. So what do they do? I don't know. That's what they did, you know. Like little kids. This happens with kids all the time. Did you draw on the wall? I don't know. <laughs> right? That's what they do, very sheepishly. So verse 8, what this happens? And Jesus says, all right, fine. <laughs> Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus brings their hypocrisy to light. If you can't judge John correctly, why should anybody trust you in judging me? You see, here's the thing. They weren't doing any of this for the right reasons. The actual questioning of where Jesus gets his authority from was not wrong in itself. It was probably a good thing. The Old Testament is full of examples of God telling his leaders, you guys are in trouble because you didn't root out false prophecy. You didn't root out idolatry. Part of your job as a leader is to protect the flock from wolves right? And like, you know, in Isaiah in different spots and Ezekiel. Like, God is very upset that the leaders didn't do this. So asking Jesus where this authority comes from is actually part of their job. So Jesus wasn't calling them out for doing their job. What he was doing, he was calling them out for doing their job for all the wrong reasons. The whole John thing points that out, point, you know, kind of shows us how that worked. Because when a true prophet comes along, what they're supposed to do is say, oh, this guy is a real prophet, and they're supposed to lift up his ministry. And if they were doing their jobs because they wanted to actually serve the Lord, that's exactly what they would have done. But what happened when a real prophet came along? They hated his guts. Now, this shows us what's going on deep inside. They had no intention of actually serving the Lord. They only wanted to serve themselves. If a real prophet right, were to come along, here's the problem for them. All of a sudden now, they're not the highest authority in the land. They're the leaders of the people, but there's a prophet sent from God who would sort of outrank them. And so people like John and Jesus, they were direct threats to their power and control over the people. And so what Jesus does is he just shines a light on this hypocrisy. You don't care about God. You don't care about the truth. You only care about yourselves, and that's why nobody should trust you. And then what he does is he hammers this home with a parable. So he takes this idea of nobody should trust you, and you guys are not honest godly leaders, and he tells this story. So let's read this story. He began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He let it out to tenants, went into another country for a long while. So the Old Testament is full of pictures where God's people are represented as a vineyard, a vine, something like that. I'm not going to go through all the verses, but anybody in this culture, I mean, anybody listening to this story in the temple with Jesus, would have automatically known, okay, Jesus is talking about the people of God. He's talking about the Israelites with this vine stuff. Okay. So then what he says is there was this vineyard and um, it was uh, the guy who owned it, rented it out so that people could, you know, I don't know. Do you farm a vineyard? What do you do to a vineyard? I should know. My mom owns a vineyard. We're about to go to one. Cultivate. Yeah. So he rents it out to these. Like this first century tenant farming was like very common. Um, This is a, this happened all the time. And the idea is pretty self-explanatory, right? Like this guy owns it, and he moved away, and these folks are working it. Now, you have to remember, though, that this was a different time. If the owner of the vineyard lived really far away, how would he know what was going on in the vineyard? Right? There's no email. There's no Slack. There's no text messages. They did, this is so old, they didn't even have Facebook or MySpace back then right? This is old school. You had to actually send somebody over to the vineyard uh, to talk. Um, And so he sends a real flesh and blood person. When the time came, so, you know, he knows, okay, the grapes are ripe, and I don't know what time of year grapes are ripe. Fall? I should know. My mom owns a vineyard, right? Uh, Fall, I guess. Okay, we'll say fall. Caleb thinks it's fall. So he, he waits till fall. Okay, the the grapes are ripe. He gives them a couple of weeks. Okay, they probably uh you know, harvested and sold the grapes or whatever. So when the time came, he sent a servant to these tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But when the tenants but the tenants beat him, that's the servant, and sent him away empty-handed. All right, let's take this story let's jump it to the 21st century. Imagine that you took a big chunk of your savings and you sent it to an investment manager. Right, this guy's job is to take your money, invest it, and try to beat the market. And so you wait a few years. And after a few years, you know every year he sends you a report or something. You get your portfolio. You look at your portfolio. And you realize, well, I've made a lot of money. This investment manager has done a pretty good job. So you take your assistant. You have to imagine you have an assistant in this illustration. Okay, This only works if you, if you have an assistant. You send your assistant over to the money manager's office to pick up a cashier's check. They can't wire transfer. That's not a thing in my illustration, just pretend. Okay. So you send uh, your assistant over to pick up the check. When your assistant shows up at the guy's office, the, insi- the investment manager punches him in the mouth and kicks him out of the office. Now, if that happened in our culture, you would write that on Facebook and it would go viral right? And people would talk about this investment manager stealing money and beat up the, you know, whatever. It, it'd be shocking to us. In the first century, this would be even more shocking than it would be to us. Because remember, this is honor-shame culture. Not only are, is he stealing, these people they're stealing, they're dishonoring the landlord and his entire family. Verse 11. So what does he do? So he sends him another servant. And they also beat, a, <clears throat> beat and treated him shamefully. They sent him away empty-handed then what does he do? He sends a third. This one, they also wounded, which is more serious, and they cast him out. Now imagine our story again. After the news gets back that the money manager beat up your assistant, you think, well, maybe something else is going on here. My assistant's pretty mouthy. Right? Maybe he said something to this guy. Maybe he got under his skin, got on his nerves. You'd be pretty angry, but probably pretty confused. You know what? I'm going to send a second guy. I'm going to send somebody else. So you send to your other assistant. You're very important in this story. You have two assistants. <laughs> Actually, you have three assistants. So you send the second assistant, and he comes back even a little bit more beat up. So then you send a third assistant. Your third assistant. You got a lot of, you're very important. You send your third assistant, and this guy, this time, he gets stabbed. Not like deadly stabbed, but, you know, just a little stabbed. <laughs> he comes back. Now you got to pay for stitches. It's a whole thing, right? Okay, do you see how ridiculous that is? What would really happen <clears throat> in this story after he beat up the first guy? You'd be pretty mad and you'd go down there and you'd handle it. The picture here that's Jesus' painting of the father with the people of Israel is he was way more gracious than he had to be. He sent a prophet, you guys beat him up and killed him. And, you know. He, he, then he sent another prophet. And he, he was way more gracious than he should have been and it goes even further. Uh, verse 13. So he's beaten up three of the servants. So what does he do? The owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I know. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. So now the investment manager has beaten up three of your best employees. What else, what else can I do to get this cashier's check? So in the story, the landlord comes up with an idea. I'll send my son. I'll send, uh, you know, my kid. And in telling the parable, Jesus even uses the very specific phrase that God used at the transfiguration and at the baptism, my beloved son, right? There's no no getting around what Jesus is talking about here. So what do they do when the son shows up? The tenants saw him. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance would be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him here's the thought process. The landlord is probably an older man, and he lives really far away. And there's no, the way that they kept track of whose land is whose is, was very different in the ancient world, right? Um, there was no, I don't know, what's it, like a database down at City Hall. It's like, oh, this property belongs to whoever. So here's their thinking. Well, this guy's old. <clears throat> if we kill his son, there'll be nobody to inherit the land, and it'll sort of default to us, and nobody will really know who owns this property, and we'll just tell everybody uh, that we own it. So Jesus says, so they kill the son. They throw him out of the vineyard. They kill the son. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? That's a rhetorical question, right? Everybody in this culture would have known exactly what this owner would do. Now, let's jump back to our story. You've sent your son to collect the check, He shows up at the investment manager's office with some legal paperwork that says, you owe me this money. But instead of paying the son, the investment manager pulls out a gun and shoots him. After a few days go by, you don't hear from your kid. You start to wonder. Then you get a call that says, oh, your son has been found uh, dead in the alley behind the investment manager's office. We don't know who killed him. You say, well, it was the investment manager. And the cops go, I don't know. There's no evidence. What are you going to do? Right, that's Jesus' rhetorical question. You're going to go bananas, right? You're going to flip out and, verse 16, he's going to come. He's going to destroy those tenants and then give the vineyard to others. Now, to anybody in this culture, this answer was obvious. First part, there's three parts to this. The first part is, now the owner is going to show up himself, right? No more sending messengers, no more go-betweens. This time, the landlord is coming by himself. The second thing is he's going to destroy the tenants. That's very strong language, okay? These are, there are probably layers to this prophecy, what Jesus is talking about here. You know, we've talked about that before. Have, Have we talked about that, the mountains with prophecy? You know about this? No? Well, we're going to get into this in Ezekiel when we do Ezekiel. But basically, if you look at a mountain range, like when I was riding my motorcycle over the Rockies, you look out at the Rockies, it looks flat, doesn't it? it? It's hard to tell which mountain starts where, even though then as you get closer and closer and closer, you can start to see them in more 3D and you realize, oh, there's a peak here and then a valley and then a peak and a valley. But as you're far away, it all just looks kind of flat. And that's kind of the illustration we use to describe a lot of the Old Testament prophecy. They were looking at something they thought was flat, but really it was layered there's like layers to these prophecies. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's kind of using those layers. So the first layer of this was probably the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And in a couple of weeks, he's going to get even more into that prophecy, and we're going to talk all about that. So I'm just going to kind of leave that here. The second idea, though, is probably a hint at the judgment coming at the end of times. Right? God is, Jesus is saying, God the Father, you know, he is going to judge you um, and... Uh, It's not going to be fun. Again, we're going to get into that in a few weeks. And then the third part here, so the first part is he's going to show up himself, he's going to destroy these tenants, and he's going to give the vineyard to somebody else. This was very shocking for anybody in the first century Jewish world to hear. You grew up your entire life. You're special and you're better because you're Jewish. You are part of this religious system, right? And all of this is based on your heritage. And now this guy comes along And says that God is going to take the keys to the kingdom, right? This birthright of yours that you assume because you're Jewish, and He's going to give that to the Gentiles. He's going to give it to somebody else, right? Romans 11 plus you know 12, 13 gets into this a bunch where he talks about the Gentiles are going to be grafted in, and if they understood exactly what Jesus was talking about when they heard this, they said, "Surely not." When they heard this, they said, "Not a chance. No way." Right? This is not one of those parables. Where at the end of it, everybody goes up to Jesus and goes, hey, can you explain what this means? Right? Everybody knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. And when he got done with it, he said, they said, no way. They get angry. We're, you know, no way this kingdom of God is going to be given to somebody else. But he looked directly at them. You know about that? Your parents do that to you? Look at me. And you look and they're mad. Right, you see it in their eyes. That's Jesus. He says, "Look at me." He does this with his fingers. Heaven does that to me. She goes like this, and so he looks directly at him. He says, "What then is <clears throat> what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him." All right. So what Jesus does here is he takes a um, Uh, like, have you ever heard one of those mashup songs? Do you know what that is? Where they take two songs and they merge them together? I think Linkin Park and Jay-Z did a whole record like this, uh, where they took Jay-Z songs and Linkin Park songs. Anyway, this is what Jesus does. He takes the Old Testament and he mashes it up. So there's three quotes here. I want you to see all three of them. The first is from Psalm 118, which is, by the way, one of the psalms that you would sing on your way to Passover, walking up the hill to Jerusalem, right? They had like a group of psalms. That they, so everybody that heard Jesus quote the song just sang it like two days ago. Okay, so he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The second quote is from Isaiah, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of a fence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. And then the third one is from Daniel. And you looked As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Okay, now I'm sure somewhere somebody has written a doctoral thesis exactly about how these three quotes relate to each other and how Jesus used them. We're not going to get into that sort of depth here, Um, kind of explaining the context of each of those three. That would take a whole sermon. The big idea, though, is pretty clear. There's a picture of a cornerstone. Now, you can imagine the temple building. If you've ever seen pictures of the temple, I could have put one up. I should have done that, but I didn't. It, just, it was made out of big stones, like basically gigantic Legos. And some I don't know how big these stones were, but they were humongous, right? And uh, if you, you can imagine building it. What they had to do was they had these instructions, and they had all these stones brought up to the temple mount, and then they had to put them together. And they had to know which stone was going where. So again, let's put this in an illustration we can understand. Imagine you go to Ikea, because you need a bookshelf. <clears throat> so you go to Ikea, and you get your bookshelf. And it has the list of all the parts. you know. So you take it out of that box, uh, 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 you know how hard it is to get all that stuff out of that box. Right? And then you use your, your uh, box cutter. And then you accidentally cut through the, the finish on the bookshelf. So you're like, OK, that's got to be the backside now. OK, so you lay it all out. And there's like eight pieces or whatever. And you're looking at the instructions, and there's only like seven pieces. What's this extra piece for? So what you do, you go, I don't need this piece. And you take it and you throw it in a fire. And then while the fire is warming your living room, you put your bookshelf together. And as you start, you realize the beginning of the instructions were wrong. And that piece you just threw into the fire is actually the main part of the bookshelf. <laughs> okay, And now you're, oh, I have no. OK, so there's a story I've heard. Uh, I, I, it, it might not have even really happened. Whether it happened or not, I think people thought it happened. Um, but anyway, when they were building the temple, this is how the story goes. They were building the temple. They had the same problem. They got all the stones together. And they go, what's this rock for? I don't know. And they kicked it down the hill behind the temple. And it rolled all the way down the hill into the valley. Then they start putting it together. And they went, oh, that's the cornerstone. That's the main piece that goes that everything else rests on it. So then they had to go down the mountain and bring it all the way back up the mountain. Uh, uh, you know. And so... uh. Again, I wouldn't put—historically, we don't know if that actually happened, but I mean, that's kind of the idea, right? Um, This is the quote about the cornerstone. Jesus is saying that you guys have taken the most important piece of the building of the temple, and you've rejected it, right? Look again at verse 18, and then he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That's the mashup of the verses from Isaiah and Daniel, Um, He's quoting from that Greek translation of the Old Testament. Basically, those who trip up and reject the Messiah are in for trouble. He kind of uses two ideas. One, you're going to trip over the stone. And then the second idea, I don't know how this happens, after you trip over the stone, then it's going to fall on you. Both ways, though, this stone that you rejected is going to come back and haunt you. So again, he's probably referring to 70 AD when the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. But in those layers, he's also talking about the end times judgment. So How do you think these leaders took Jesus' parable and his quotes? You know what? We should repent of our wickedness, and we should follow you, O king of Israel. No, no, that's not what happens. The scribes and the chief priests, so the Sanhedrin, they sought to lay hands on him at the very hour, for they perceived, yeah, no duh, that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people, right? They wanted to kill him, but they were afraid of the people, right? Just like with the John question. Uh, they love this guy. We don't know what to do. Uh, they need a, so they need a plan, which is what they're going to come up with next. Now, that's where we're going to stop the story. So you can see the flow of the story, right? The religious leaders come to Jesus and they ask him, what authority do you have to teach in the temple and to flip our tables over, right? How, and to sort of judge our way of doing temple system. And so they challenge Jesus publicly. So step one, he brings their hypocrisy to light you're not judging me for the right reasons, and you're terrible at your jobs because you got the John thing wrong. Then step two, he tells this very harsh parable about them losing their place in the kingdom of God. And so you can see the teaching part, right? We talked about teaching and preaching. The teaching part of this passage is pretty easy. It's not that hard to get the facts right about what Jesus did and why he did it. The preaching part here, though, is a little more difficult, right? As we apply this to our own lives, as we take this home and say, well, who cares about this? Right, that's the question. What do we do with this? Let's jump to the preaching part. Right? What did he? What does this mean for me in the 21st century? You see, it's very easy for us, sitting in North Beach. In the 21st century, right? In 2022, the year of our Lord, 2022. Wait, did I put that in the sign? You saw that? Yeah, that's funny. I forgot. If I, yeah, <laughs> in the slide. Anyway, um, uh, it's easy for us to look back with sort of righteous judgment on these leaders. They're the bad guys and they don't get it and if I was there I would have been one of the good guys. The problem is that attitude is exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is condemning in these leaders. Right? It's the same attitude. I'm right and everybody else is wrong and I'm the center of the world and everybody else needs to be on the margins. I think we should look at this story though and be challenged because let's be real, aren't we a little bit more like the scribes and the chief priests than we like to admit? when it comes to letting Jesus have authority in our lives? Because in our fallen state, we're very selfish people. Think about it. Every, almost every situation that pops up in your life, the first thing that pops into your head is, how does this affect me? Right? Like I read a story yesterday, or a story, it's a tweet. I've seen it a hundred times. <laughs> people keep posting it on Reddit. But basically, some guy died on a flight. And so they did an emergency landing. And this guy, I mean, it's funny. The guy, it's true, but the guy gets up and he goes, if the guy's already dead, why is this an emergency? We're all going to miss our connections, right? I was like, oh, he said that out loud. He said the quiet part out loud, you know? But I mean, but you get what I'm saying? The first thing he thought was, how is this guy dying going to affect me, right? Isn't that what we all do? Every time, you know, like, um, how, how often have you been upset in traffic to drive past a horrific accident? But the first thing you thought was, I'm going to be 10 minutes late. Don't these people care about me? You know what I mean? We're very selfish people. And the other thing is we don't like authority. That selfishness means we don't like to have authority in our lives, including Jesus. And so here's what we do. This is a major temptation for Christians in the West to have a sort of faith where Jesus is something like a half a Lord. He's not all the way Lord. He, I'll give him half. And that means he gets to be in charge as long as whatever it is that I want him to do anyway, or as long as he tells me to do whatever I already want to do anyway. But when he tells me through scripture or whatever something I don't want to do, I don't know, I don't like that part. Right? So I'm not going to do it. I'm, gonna, I'm only going to give him half of the authority. You know, this works in a few different ways, right? Like, let me give you some examples. Um, like time management as believers We live in a, like, a go, go, go kind of culture. You need to work yourself to death, right? But the scripture is very clear that, like, hey, you should probably take care of yourself. And it's so important that God goes, hey, you should even take a whole day to take care of yourself and to renew yourself spiritually. And we don't really take that very seriously. And so we say, Jesus, I'll let you be the Lord of my life except for this idea of taking care of myself. Or, like, um, another one I wrote down was... um, the idea of uh, like commitment to the church family versus like what I can get out of the church, right? A big idea with this church family is you guys shouldn't just be here for what you get out of this. You should be here because you need each other. We need each other, don't we? And so Jesus says you should show up to church to serve other church people. You should be part of this family. And we go, "Ah, I don't really like that. I'm part of a consumer culture, so I'm going to be a consumer. So I'm going to let Jesus be halfway Lord in my life. Or again, like the Pabst Blue Ribbon. So here at the porch, we do this thing. We talk about Pabst Blue Ribbon a lot. It's a beer, and it's disgusting, I think, right? It's like the hipster beer, um, a watered-down beer. But anyway, we take Pabst as our acronym for like missional living and outreach. So we have people in our lives that we're doing this Pabst pathway with. We pray for them, we pa ask them about their lives. We bless them in ways nobody else would. We share our stories with them, and then we talk to them about the gospel. Now, a lot of times I think what we're doing is, I'm going to do this Pabst if it comes to me, right? As it's convenient for me, I'm going to engage in this kind of missional living. But that's not really what the Lord calls us to do. He calls us to be active, to go out, to really like be passionate about our friends and our neighbors who don't know the Lord. So there's two ways to do that. Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to let him sort of be half the Lord of my life versus I'm really going to engage in this. Another one, the last one I'll write here is grace versus legalism, right? The idea that you're saved because of the work of Jesus and that's it, it's done, right? Your name is written in the book of life in heaven and your sin doesn't really affect that. Not that you should just go out there and sin, right? Versus legalism, which is I'm going to do all these things so that Jesus will love me more. And when we do that, what we're telling him is, I was saved in grace, but I'm going to continue in works. I'm going to let you be a half a Lord in my life. I'm not going to give you the full authority to tell me even how my salvation works. There are going to be times in your life where you come up against the temptation to make Jesus, to just have him be a half a Lord in your life. And as long as you're on this side of eternity, you're you're still waging war with your sin nature, this is going to come up, Over and over and over again. I am only letting Jesus halfway into my life. So, what we need to do then is what the Sanhedrin guys actually did. We need to stop and we need to take inventory and we need to ask Jesus, What gives you the authority, the right to be the Lord of my life? And the answer is actually in the parable What gives Jesus the right? What gives him the authority in our lives, in our church? the answer comes from who he is. He's the son of God sent by the father. That's the only person that gets to be the Lord of your life is somebody who is basically God himself. And we don't give him honor, like despite the fact that he was killed. We give him honor and his due because he was killed, right? His death then is the greatest thing that's ever been done for you. Nobody has ever earned your love or respect more. Nobody has ever done more to love you than what Jesus did on the cross a few few days after he tells his parable. He's the only one that deserves this kind of authority in your life, right? Not worldly narratives, not politics, not selfish ambition. Nothing else gets to be the Lord of your life but Jesus. Okay, so then how do we apply that? How do you listen to Jesus? That's the question. You come to this, okay, I want him to be the Lord of my life. How do I do it? Okay, there's two ways, and I don't have enough time to get into all my notes here that I actually have because we're already out of time. But there's two ways to do this. The first way is scripture, right? God gave us the apostles and the, the leaders of the early church. They wrote this stuff down as authoritative in our lives. And so we should be people of scripture, right? I have the verse, you know, it's famous. All scripture is breathed by God. It's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be a complete, equipped for every good work. That's pretty cool. Right? God has given us a way to sit down and listen to him. So here's the application if you write down questions. Here's what I want you to think about this week for this one. Does scripture bring joy in your life? The authority of Jesus through scripture, does that bring joy? If not, I want you to stop and ask yourself why. Okay, so that's the first way we hear from God. The second way we hear from God is through the church, through each other, right? I'm not going to get into all this, but right, he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, right? He, basically, this is a big fancy way. First, Pres, first Presbyterian, they read this verse every week. Have you noticed that when we've been there? You know, what kind of church do we seek to be? And then they read this whole verse. Um, but here's the thing. God has given you pastors like me who get up and teach the word, but he's also given you stuff like, look at, he says, um, well, apostles are not a thing anymore, um, but look, prophets. um, The idea with prophecy nowadays, I just want to say this real quick, is not authoritative, I'm Isaiah, and you have to listen to what I say. It's, I feel like the Lord is telling me to tell you this thing, and I want you to pray about it, and then decide for yourself. (laughs) I'm not an authoritative source in your life, but I'm an encouraging source, right? And so we really have two ways to let Jesus be an authority in our lives, is to listen to scripture and to support and to love each other. And so I'll end with uh, the two questions then for the second part, this authoritative, I mean, this uh, listening to church people as the voice of God. Um, Two things, just with the sermons on Sunday, here's the thing. Are you trying to get through a sermon? I've been in some sermons like that. You've probably been in some of my sermons like that. Right? Are you just trying to get through it? Oh, 45 minutes, whatever. Or are you looking for Jesus in sermons? Right? The reason I've devoted my entire life to preaching is because I think this is a pretty cool thing that Jesus has given his church. It's a powerful moment where God speaks to his people through dummies. Right? The second thing is, what walls do you have up in your life in the way that your life is structured that keeps the church community away from you? Versus what areas of your life do you really let the church in to speak to you? Because as the church speaks to you, as scripture speaks to you, Jesus speaks to you. And that's the way he gets to be the authority in your life. Amen?